The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, I'm really delighted to have as our guest Mr. Fred Banson. Fred describes himself as a farmer and a writer, but he's awfully humble because really he's an award-winning, prolific writer focusing on food and faith. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, Melinda. Fred, you're based in North Carolina. You are a Food and Society Policy Fellow, and you are presently serving as a Senior Fellow at the Oakland Institute. But I was very interested in your history of your work regarding food, faith, gardening. And I know as a child you say that you were a missionary kid in Nigeria. And then you went on to spend several years working overseas. What did you learn from that experience overseas? Wow, it's hard to to put that into one kind of idea or, or thought. But I think I learned at least a little bit of humility that, that Americans are not sort of the center of the universe, as we tend to think we are sometimes. And I, I learned that there's just a, a wealth of knowledge to be learned from indigenous cultures. I had the, the great pleasure of working with some folks in Chiapas, Mexico, from the, the Tzotzil language group. And they were a group of indigenous coffee farmers, and they were unfortunately victims of the low-intensity war that Mexico waged against its own citizens back in the 1990s. And I went down there as a peace worker in 2001 and lived with them for several months. And uh, that was really what got me interested in agriculture, actually, and and in connecting food and faith. Well, you are the co-founder and former director of the Anatoth Community Garden, which is a ministry of Cedar Grove, the United Methodist Church in Orange County, North Carolina. And I heard you give a presentation about your experience there, and I found it to be so moving. And what you mentioned about humility, I think, really came through in your presentation. And it deeply touched me because I thought, if only more of us had that quality, I think we would have a better world. So tell us a little bit about how you came to start the garden there. Yeah, it was sort of a a circuitous path of events. I... I went to Divinity School at Duke Divinity School back in um, from '98 to 2000, where I, I got a master's degree in theology. And after finishing there, I went and worked with the folks in Chiapas, Mexico. I was talking about. And after that experience, I really sort of came back with this strong desire to, to use my faith in some sort of practical way. And that seemed to be through the path of agriculture. That sort of came my my call, my vocation. And I didn't really know what to do with that, and yet I had this really strong urge, this strong desire to, to do something with farming. My wife and I, after we got married, we, we bought a small farm down in the Piedmont of North Carolina, and we started raising our own vegetables. We had some milk goats, a few chickens, and my wife was working as a, a student intern at a church uh, just up the road, a little rural Methodist church, Orange County, North Carolina, former tobacco-growing region. And this church had recently experienced a murder in their community. There was a man who was 
killed in his bait and tackle shop, a little corner store on the corner of Mill Creek and Car Store Roads. And in the town of Cedar Grove, which is pretty much just a you know a caution light and a post office and a Methodist church, mm-hmm. murders just don't really happen that often. And so it, it really shock, shook, shook the community. And as a result of that murder, the, the local pastor, a woman named Grace Hackney, decided to uh, have a prayer service and sort of pray for peace and pray that, that God would somehow use this murder, to, that, that something good would come out of this horrendous event. And one of the, the people present at that prayer service was a woman named Mrs. Taylor. And Mrs. Taylor, fifth-generation sharecropper descendant, later had a dream a few weeks after that, that prayer service. She had a dream in which God told her to give five acres of land to the community as a way to somehow heal the wounds of that, of that murder. She didn't know who to give it to. She didn't know what it should be used for. She just felt strong urge to, to donate some land. So that's one piece of the story. Another piece of the story is that Pastor Grace Hackney, the woman who organized the prayer vigil, had been sort of interested in doing some kind of rural ministry, some kind of using the land around the church to address hunger and poverty in the area. And she had gotten together a group of local folks, a local librarian, folks from her church, folks from a couple different churches. And my wife, being a student intern there, asked me to come to, to one of these meetings, and I did. And early on, this idea for a community garden came about. You know, here's how a church can serve its community uh, by providing food, by teaching people how to grow their own food. And community garden idea quickly gained momentum. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be great to, to get involved with this? And, um, and I thought, maybe I could do this for a job. You know, maybe they would hire me. And so I talked to the church, and we had some conversations. I ended up writing some grants to fund my position, and they hired me. And we started this community garden ministry back in the fall of 2005. And out of that sort of initial initial idea to, to do a community garden, we had no idea where that would lead. You know, we just we thought maybe this would be a great local ministry, uh, way to, to feed some folks, but little did we know that it would turn into this kind of thriving community center and a place where, you know, we had black gospel choirs come and sing and bluegrass bands play, and we had a, a youth program develop out of that. Heifer International gave us a three-year grant to teach youth gardening skills. So there's sort of all these things that just spun out of that original idea, and we can only attribute it to, to God's intervening work. You know, it was no sort of one person running the show. It was it was just uh, we were sort of along for the ride in a lot of ways. Well, if you go to the Anatoth website, there's a lot of wonderful writing. Yours is among that writing. But there's a piece that says, Anatoth has become a place of hospitality, a place where children eat, then play with the community's elderly, a place where newly arrived immigrants join suburbia's overscheduled and overworked professionals for a simple meal at the edge of a quiet garden. In this place, quote, to eat is still something more than to maintain bodily functions. People may not understand what that something more is but they nonetheless desire to celebrate it. They are still hungry and thirsty for sacramental life. And that quote was attributed to Alexander Schmemann. I think in the presentation that you gave to some Food and Society policy fellows, you described 
this transformative experience with the garden. I mean, true, you, you turned nothing into land for food production. But you also described some early resistance and then the changes that occurred. One woman, for example, who was severely overweight, who lost a tremendous amount of weight. So talk about a little bit the the transition and some of the barriers that you faced. Why on earth would anyone be opposed to the garden? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. It's sort of like, why would anyone be opposed to universal health care? <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but surprisingly, people are. And, and this church was really unique in that there were a mix of, of very kind of progressive-minded folks and mix a mix of, of kind of older, more conservative folks. And yet, you know, the church managed to, to hash it out and, and to remain a church and not splinter off into all these different groups. But yet there were, there were a, a small but vocal minority in that church who didn't feel that starting a community garden was what the church should be doing. And they felt that because, for one, it was threatening. It was a, a new idea. Um, they didn't know of any other churches that had a community garden. You know, this was a rural area. Why should people, you know, people grow their own gardens? Why do we need a community garden kind of thing? Um, another reason was the, the garden was located down in, quote-unquote, down there um, in the black section of Cedar Grove, and people were threatened by that. This, a, a small group of people were threatened by that. And, you know, early on, we, those of us who were helping to start this garden, would talk about it in terms of this This is a place of hospitality. This is a place to welcome the stranger. Uh, we had a lot of um, undocumented workers from, from south of the Rio Grande um, in the area. We would welcome them. We'd have potluck suppers twice weekly. And so all kinds of people were, were coming in and out of the garden, and, you know, black, white, Latino, and people from all different social classes and economic backgrounds. And I think just... Uh, a small group of folks in the church found that threatening, and a, a few of them were quite vocal in their opposition. But over time, you know, having seen what the garden became, I think they they either grew indifferent or they joined forces with, with the garden. And there was a really powerful moment. I went to speak at a local civic club, the Ruerton Club. Uh, this is sort of the bastion of, of Cedar Grove's old guard, the, the conservative tobacco farmers. I went and gave a presentation on our work at the garden and talked about how we had you know, teenagers come out and work there, working off their community service hours and, and the, the great benefit that was to them and showed them some slides. And I had one guy come up afterward and said, you know, I had it all wrong. I thought you guys were a bunch of yahoos down there. And I apologize for, uh, you know, for thinking that, and I want to sign up and become a member. And he paid his $5 membership fee on the spot. So there, there are all kinds of, of stories like that of once people overcome that initial fear of the community garden as this place of, of, of bringing people together, once they overcome that fear, they, you know, they want to be a part of it. Well, and you, you talk, too, about this pivotal role that churches can play in providing food for more, for more people and that... You know, I know you and some other fellows who were very much uh, interested in garden-based education and community gardens have even said that, you know, the World War II Victory Gardens produced 40% of the vegetables that Americans are eating. We're now importing 
about 50% of the fruits and vegetables that we consume in the United States. And yet, what you showed with this community garden is not only that you could bring and develop true community, but that you could feed a lot of people the kinds of foods that are difficult to get, especially in rural communities and and urban. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that we have these food deserts um, in places where you would think there would be a lot of food production. Yeah, I'm just amazed at you know, having started Anathoth Community Garden and having since seen other churches start gardens of their own. I'm just amazed at the potential for what churches can do through community gardening. You know, churches have land, they have capital, they have an organized volunteer base with a desire to do good and serve their community. And, and I see just a lot of potential as as we see the the glaring gaps in our food system and, and see that monolithic system start to crumble, I see the chance for thousands of local food economies sprouting up and, and churches being central to that. And most churches, you know, I think are, this is still somewhat of a new idea, but I think uh, I just went to talk to a small Methodist church two nights ago right up the road. They only have about 30 members, but they are just fired up about starting a community garden. And, you know, it's, once they get the idea, uh, I think the, there's just unlimited potential once the church is unleashed. <laughs> I, I agree, Fred. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Fred Banson. He's a farmer, an award-winning and prolific writer, focusing on food and faith. He is the co-founder and former director of the Anatoth Community Garden in North Carolina. Fred, your work has been published in Orion, The Sun, uh, Sojourners. You have won the Best American, your, excuse me, your work has appeared in the Best American Spiritual Writing. And you, you also have a book titled Wendell, Ber- Wendell Berry and Religion, Heaven's Earthly Life published by the University of Press of Kentucky. You've spent time with Wendell Berry? I have. I, I just I had the chance to spend a morning with him, nothing more than that. But actually, that book was not my book. The Wendell Berry and Religion was uh, an anthology that I contributed a chapter to. I see. Edited by Joel, Joel Schumann. But um, actually, my wife has a chapter in there as well. Oh, that's great. Well, tell us about uh, what you learned from Wendell Berry. You know, he's, he's such a... Um, an icon, isn't he, with regard to the whole spiritual aspect of food and yeah, the earth? He, he really is. He's he's been uh, he's been pretty instrumental in, in shaping my thinking and, and I think a whole generation of, of young agrarians. Yeah, I, I think you know, I, I went to start out by reading everything he wrote when I was in divinity school and exchanged letters with him a few times and, and went up to visit him on his farm when I was in the area. And, uh, you know, he's, he's often sort of dour in his writings, or can be, it can be, you know, he's, he's writing about some pretty serious stuff, but in person I found him to be this wonderful sort of grandfatherly figure with just a, a real wry, mischievous sense of humor. And uh, it was a great honor to spend a couple hours with him. But I think he's been really shaped my thinking and helping me see that, that the life of faith and the life of action, bodily life out in the world they're not two lives. They're 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 part of the same whole, and um, so we have to try and keep those those different parts in balance. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do. Our society is so consumerism focused, and I think what your work and 
and your garden did was it brought people back to the earth and the source of it all. And when you present, you bring scripture into the into the story. And I had no idea there were so many references to the earth in scripture. There really are. You know, starting right there in Genesis, we learn in, in chapter 2 that God created the Adam from the Adamah, the human from the humus. That's a wonderful etymological clue there that our lives are inextricably linked to the soil, Mm -hmm. the Adama, the fertile soil. And and a few verses after that, God tells the Adam to till and keep the garden. Another translation is to serve and preserve the garden. And I think that's that's our vocation for those in the the Judeo-Christian tradition. Right there in in, the first book in the Bible, our vocation is and preserve the soil to care for the land. And in so doing, we're caring for, for others. And if I remember correctly, you also had something from the Islamic faith, and you realized that all faiths have the same, the same moral code. Yeah, I think there are quite a few similarities. And I think you know, a, a lot of people in faith communities are really getting back to the centrality of body life of life lived on you know an actual lived in an actual place and that we need to look after that place uh, or it will no longer look after us so i think a lot of people in, in faith communities are returning to that mhm you know i forgot to ask you something when we were talking about the garden in north carolina i have to ask you to tell the story about the woman who lost so much weight yeah doris doris came to us about a year after I could, actually no, she was she was there before I came, but she joined the garden and when she joined she I'm guessing she weighed well over three hundred pounds and talked about how she wanted to lose weight and coming to the garden and in participating in our potlucks and eating good, healthy, fresh local produce. She really uh I think got inspired and you know, she would come and take home a bunch of collard greens to freeze and just talked about how much she loved good Jericho romaine lettuce we were growing, and she just got really excited about about all the food that we were growing there, and, and she vowed to lose quite a bit. Of, I, don't, I can't remember what her initial number was, but one day she came and said, you know, I've just I've, I've checked the scales, and I lost 75 pounds, and, uh, and I want to lose another 100. <laughs> so <laughs> she, she was pretty pretty motivated, and she really inspired a lot of us there with her determination. 75 pounds is no small amount. It's not. It's not. And that was just, you know, we we didn't, at the garden, we didn't teach health classes. We didn't do nutrition classes. We could have, and and probably I imagine that will start happening at some point. But it was really just the the community of people growing and sharing healthy food sort of transformed people's eating habits. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that about nutrition classes because, I'm sitting here as a dietitian thinking, oh, no, please don't do that. <laughs> you know, I think what you did at the gar- with the garden is that you provided nutrition education in the best way, in the hands-on way, in the learning by example, and having the fresh food there. And then did you cook together as well? We did, yeah. We, uh, we didn't have an oven out there, but we did have electricity, and so people would bring crock pots and plug those in and we would often bring a little propane stove down there during the summer there was there was a teen chef 
school that would bring their teens, bring their students out to the garden and do cooking classes for us. And we would take the chefs, the teen chefs, out into the garden and teach them how to harvest food. And then we'd go back and the teen chefs would teach the garden members how to prepare it. Well, these are the best nutrition education classes on earth, literally. And I hope that you know, the garden will continue to thrive. Do you know how it's doing since you've left? Yeah, it's, it really continues to thrive. And they have a new director now. I stepped down in August so that I could focus more on my writing. And I actually moved up to the mountains where, uh, where my family lives. And they are continuing to thrive and grow. And the youth program is taking off. And I have every, every hope that it will continue. Well, you must be very proud. I also took a look at another piece you wrote that's available also at the Anatop site, and I encourage our listeners to go and read some of Fred's work. It's called A Theology of Eating. And in that, there is a wonderful pull quote about eating that degrades creation. And I, I really can't emphasize this piece of your work enough. The fact that, well, you, you have another quote that you gave in one of your talks about how we were given appetites not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and hunger to make it great. And I think that that comment, in combination with this quote, that eating that degrades creation, be it through exhausting the soil or through forcing animals to become eating machines in a factory feedlot, is in opposition to what all faiths really teach us about our relationship between man and the earth. That's right. I think that's right. And yeah, that, that quote was from uh, Robert Farrar Capon in his book, The Supper of the Lamb, which I would highly recommend. He was, uh, Capon was an Episcopal priest and a chef, and he sort of combined talking about theology with his love of cooking. And, uh, wonderful writer as well. And I think he... Um, you know, he's he's one of the one of the few people I've seen. I, I think we're seeing a lot more. My friends Norman Weirdspa and, and Ellen Davis are both theologians who are writing a lot about food and agriculture. But I think we need a lot more of this. We need a lot more thought going into thinking as people of faith how we how we eat, how we grow our food. Does or does that not reflect our beliefs? And um, how can we look after this? creation we've been entrusted with and share it with others. I think that's really beautiful. We only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with some final thoughts. I know that you're working on another piece right now, looking at a more global situation, You know, looking at the Gates Foundation and some of their programs that they're doing. But I want to leave this totally open to you, and I would love to actually have you back to talk more about some of the subjects you're writing about. But what would you like to leave our listeners with? It's a great question. I'm, the piece you mentioned is a piece I'm doing on a little, a little farm down in Florida called ECHO, the Educational Concerns for Hunger Organization. And I went to visit there in, in March and got really excited about their work. They're an interdenominational Christian organization that's been around for 30 years or so. And they are training people in agroecological farming techniques for the tropics. And uh, I saw them, I went to visit them, and then been studying sort of the work that the Gates Foundation is doing and, and some of these bigger, you know, the, the World Bank and, and some of the bigger groups. And I was just really inspired by this 
small, unknown little group down in Florida with limited funds who are very unpretentiously just trying to empower local folks in third world settings in the global south to be better farmers and to, to maximize the productivity of their land and to do that in a way that conserves the soil and that uses minimal resources. So I'm, I'm inspired by little groups like that, and uh, that's kind of what I look for in, in my writing for future projects is to, to find small groups that are, um, that are using agriculture to, to serve their communities and do that in a way that's beneficial to future generations. I think that's a great send-off message. And I want to thank you so much, Fred, for spending time with us. And I encourage our listeners to go to the Food and Society Policy Fellows website. It's www.foodandsocietyfellows.org. And you'll have an opportunity to meet the fellows, and Fred Banson's name is there. You can click on it and learn more about his wonderful work and see a picture of him holding a goat, which is just so sweet. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Fred Banson, thank you so much for your time thank and you, your work. Thank, thank you. you.